reading is from St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, and will be read by Jill. Luke chapter 3, verse 1 to 18, page 1029 in the Pew Bible. John the Baptist prepares the way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Amen. Now, come on up, you good people. Here is Sam and uh, Emma and Thea and Imogen. Uh, what about a nice round of applause for these uh, good people?
Now, we don't ordinarily have uh, people so young in the pulpit, but uh, Emma, you are very welcome. You are here as our new assistant minister, is that right? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> you don't. Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're going to be here as the student assistant for this coming year, and then uh, all being well, that leads into your full assistantship here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, thanks, Frank. Um, well, I won't go into the details of the terminology, but I suppose I'm basic student assistant means I'm still studying at Union. I'm in my third year studying at Union Theological College. You've probably picked up already, even in those few words, I'm not originally from Belfast. Um, originally from the east of England in Suffolk. Uh, moved over here uh, with Emma. We just got married. Uh, we were about six months married, and we moved over here about four years ago. Uh, we've, we've been the last four years at, at Kirkpatrick, uh, just up the road, so working there for a couple of years and then studying. Great. And Emma, tell us a wee bit about yourself. You're from down the road in Bangor. I am, yeah. I'm from Bangor originally. Um, so yeah, we, I went across to London uh, and I was there for about 10 years studying and working and that's where I picked up the English English boy, <laughs> brought him back. Um, and yeah, so we've been back for four years now. Um, I'm now a mum of two girls and I work part-time as well. And what is your work? Um, I'm an architect, self I'm self-employed. Okay, so. isn't that brilliant? Yeah. Now, Emma and uh, Sam, we will have opportunity to find out a little bit more about you at Life Builders next Sunday. Uh, and Sam, you're preaching here next Sunday morning, so we look forward to that very much and look forward to being able to get to know you as a family unit. Sam, this coming year, you're only with us six hours a week, so it's not very much, but uh, it, it's wonderful to have you here, and we want to just pray for you and Thanks just so ask God to be with you. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your care and your love for us in the most intimate in, uh, ways, and thank you for your care for us in our lives, and thank you, our Heavenly Father, for bringing uh, Sam and Emma to be with us, uh, with Imogen and Thea, and ask that they will know your uh, affirmation and your blessing here in Bloomfield. May they feel at home, and uh, may we also uh, receive and benefit as you are uh, um, have designed so that your word is opened and lives are given and shared in the love of Christ. So we entrust this family unit into your keeping in the strong name of Jesus. May invite you to turn to that truth now, page 1029 in our Pew Bibles, Luke chapter 3. Even as I was preparing this sermon, Rick Scott, governor of the state of Florida, was saying these words, every Floridian must listen and take this warning seriously and be aggressive to protect your family. Hurricane Irma is more dangerous than any storm we've ever encountered. This is a cataclysmic storm. We can't save you when the storm starts. Evacuate now. This will not be a fun place to be. And in our Bible reading this morning, Luke chapter 3, John, the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth, makes an uncannily similar declaration, except in a spiritual sense. I baptize with water, he says, but one more powerful than I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
And with the many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Are you as intrigued as I am by that last phrase? Having warned the people seriously and aggressively to escape from judgment, that is as powerful as Hurricane Irma. Luke then tells us that in many words, John preached the gospel to them. Now, now why might what he is saying be good news? Because it sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Well, it was good news because the mark of a faithful leader and the mark of a faithful prophet and preacher is saying not what people want to hear, but what we need to hear. And that's why it's good news. Because most people in this world don't tell the truth. But here we have the truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, every one of us in church this morning, whether we recognize it or not, need to be washed, for we are dirty. And every one of us needs to be purified because we're unclean. May Jesus Christ exercise his authority among us today as the one who baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. For his glory we pray. Amen. These uh, Sunday mornings we're taking time to think about the person Jesus described as the greatest person who ever existed. Last week we read in Luke chapter 1 John's, uh, about John's remarkable birth, uh, how Zachariah and Elizabeth yearned for a child not so much to be happy as to be holy. And today we're going to be thinking about John's remarkable preaching. And yet in one sense, while we'll be looking at John, John the baptizer, our goal all the while is to look past John, to look to the one he is pointing to, to look beyond the one who baptizes with water and encounter the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, even Christ Jesus. And so here in Luke chapter 3, uh, which is page 1029, we see the context of our key players. Uh, poor Jill, who had to read this to us this morning, and you did it so very well. Um, do, you see, uh, chapter, uh, do you see the context in which... Uh, we we uh, find this this story. Luke cha- chapter one, by the way, in verse three, has already told us that that the aim of this book is to give an orderly account, so that you may know with certainty the things we've been taught. And so here we now uh, have the political and the religious context into which John ministered and into which Christ soon would come. Please feel free when you go home to Google Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch, and Annas and Caiaphas. Uh, Suffice to say that they were all important people. They were really important people. And they were located way up in the capital city of Rome and Jerusalem. That's where important people are. And where's John? Verse (laughs) 2, he was down in the desert. While all these important people were up in the capital city, that's the context John was down among the rocks and the wild animals. Isn't that interesting? 
Nobody's absolutely certain why uh, John was down by the desert. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 80 has already told us that the child grew up and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Some have speculated that perhaps with his parents being elderly, he was orphaned at an early stage and chose to live with a group of fellow uh, Jews uh, called the Essenes in a place called Qumran. Uh, some of you who have been to the Holy Land will have visited there. It's, it's the lowest point of earth. It is an isolated and hot and uh, um, um, faraway location down by the Dead Sea. And if you go to Qumran, you can still see pools there used by the people then to dip or to wash those who came for spiritual refreshment. So the the political and the religious elite were up in Jerusalem, but the spiritual life and vitality was not there. No, it was was with John in the desert region. And verse 3 tells us he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what was it about John's preaching in the desert that was so remarkable? What was it about his proclamation that brought crowds of people. Do you see that in verse 7? They came from all the regions around. They flocked to hear him. Uh, they, they came to this most in, inhospitable uh, and inconvenient place because they wanted to hear this man. Well, Luke highlights a number of key elements, and I'm going to mention five that just leap out from the text. And the first is what it says in verses 2 and 3. The Word of God came to John, and he went In the evenings, we're looking at the fascinating Old Testament story of Jonah. And how does that book begin? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh. And Jonah said, no. Jonah refused to go when God's word came to him. But there was no missing the call. God's word came to the prophet. And if you look up the book of Micah or Zephaniah or Jeremiah, you'll see exactly the same uh, formula. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1, for example, on page 755. There you can see the religious and the uh, political context of his day highlighted in exactly the same way. It was during the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. In other words, he was given a message to proclaim. So John's preaching was remarkable, not because all of a sudden he had a special thought that he wanted to to impart, not because he had some fresh idea that he decided it would be a good idea to share. His preaching was remarkable because God had given a message to proclaim. And in obedience, he did that. He went I think it is of interest that all four gospel writers reference John. We don't always do so. I mentioned the same situation or people, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about John the baptizer because he had something really important to say. He had a message from God. Uh, Listen how the gospel writer John, he's a different John, by the way, than the one we're thinking about, John the Baptist. See what John's Uh, in his gospel has got to say, there came a man, John chapter 1 verse 6, who was 
sent by God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. Uh, as what turned out to be the last of the Old Testament prophets, John, uh, he had something hugely important to communicate to the people from God. And when the word of God came to him, he went. He wasn't bringing a message from himself, it was from the Lord. So that's the reason, the first reason John's preaching was remarkable. It was God's message. Can I just say that that's why we here in Bloomfield deliberately base our preaching program on books from the Bible, Old and New Testament, so that by the Holy Spirit's help, we hear what it is God that has got to say, not what some notion that the minister or preacher thinks, I think that would be a good idea to talk about. So that's the first important uh, factor here, why John's preaching was remarkable. The second one is that the message that John had to say from God helped people both hear and see. Uh, we see this from verses 4 and 6. Have you ever met people who were astonished that you go to church? Uh, absolutely incredulous that God might speak to you through the Bible as it has opened up. Or maybe if you're honest, you have come to church, maybe for a long time, and God has never spoken to you. you you've never really heard or seen what it does that other people seem to get excited about from the Bible. And it really is my prayer that as John's message, which he received from God and communicated to the people by the power of the Spirit, you too might soon be able to say, now I've heard it. Now I see. I see it for myself. Do you know that's what happened this past year when Damien led a Christianity Explained course? For at least one person on that, they were able to see. Now I understand. Now I see. It's a wonderful thing. And here as it's written, as in the book of the words of Isaiah centuries before, John is the one who is both spoken about and who foretells. Uh, John is a voice in the desert. Um, a voice. A voice is very anonymous. You hear a voice over in the, on the uh, television? Uh, the person hasn't their, their, their image on the screen. It's just a voice. That's what John is. He's a voice. Uh, he, he can be heard all right, but he's not drawing attention to himself. And, and the prophet Isaiah, quoted here, says that there is a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, and all mankind will see God's salvation. So John has something important to say from God about Jesus that enabled people at last to be able to hear and to see, so they're able to say, now I understand, salvation is found in Jesus. I get it. It's not in anything I do. It's not by me trying hard. Jesus is the one. I can trust in him for all of my salvation. And do you see uh, the image that is used here 
Salvation is found in Christ, who is the coming King. Um, It's the image of rough ways made smooth. Last November, Claire, Ruth, and I were in Nepal. One day, we traveled on the most horrendous road I, I couldn't begin to describe to you, which was in the epicenter of the region where the earthquakes uh, happened, which devastated so many of the buildings and infrastructure. And some of the roads we were traveling on had been cleared and had been filled in before our coming, and we were so grateful for that. But here, in Isaiah's prophecy, he's saying that someone would come whose preaching would not fill in the odd pothole or remove a few random boulders from the pathway of the coming king. No. In anticipation for the arrival of the king of kings, verse 5, every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain shall be made low. The crooked road shall be made straight and rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. So John's preaching was remarkable because the Word of God came to John and he went, and the message that John had to say from God helped people to hear and to see Jesus. He really did prepare the way for his arrival. And the third thing I think about John's proclamation was that his message was direct and clear. Imagine John standing up and saying, every Judean must listen and take this warning seriously and be aggressive to protect your family. Hurricane Messiah is coming and he will be more incredible than any other judgment we've ever encountered before. This is a catastrophic encounter. Repent and believe. And that was his message, verse verse 8. You brood of vipers, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Every tree that does not produce good fruit, verse 9, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, you cannot get clearer than that, can you? To which the crowds then asked in verse 10, then what should we do? In the light of your clear proclamation of the gospel, people ask, how then shall we live? And John's response is as plain as it is simple. Verse 11, the man with two tunics should share with him who does not, and the one who has food should do the same. In other words, John is saying there has to be a correlation between those who believe what you say and what you do. Simple. No point in saying I believe and then, and then not living as a believer God has blessed you with plenty. It's necessary that you share life's necessities with others who have none. If God has lavishly blessed you with the gospel, then don't hold that back. Be generous. That is evidence of regeneration. And he gives this illustration. If you've got an apple tree in your back garden, what do you expect of it at this time of the year? Nice green leaves? No. You expect good fruit. And if that tree is taking up valuable space in your back garden, isn't producing apples, then chop it. 
And apple wood makes lovely logs for the Christmas fire. That's the illustration John gives here. What is the evidence of a life of repentance? Actions that are in keeping with the gospel. No point in saying, I'm saved, and then live an unregenerate life. Anybody can say, I'm a Christian. But the proof of a Christian life is the outward expression lived out with practical evidence. Now, now clearly, there were a lot of people from many different echelons of society who came to hear John preach, so they asked him, uh, how does that apply to me? So, the tax collectors, for example, in verse 12, they had come to receive John's baptism, and they said, teacher, what should we do? Um, What would be the evidence of the Holy Spirit's regeneration in our situation? And John replied, it's plain. Don't collect any more than you're required to. That will set you apart from other tax tax collectors. That will make you different from all your colleagues who line their own pockets for selfish gain. Only collect what you're supposed to. That'll be evidence. And then some soldiers, verse 14, asked him, and what should we do? And to them John replied, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, he's not saying here you're forbidden from asking your boss for an increase in your salary, but what he is saying is don't try to bully people into parting from their possessions by unscrupulous means. A mark of a truly converted woman or man is that they can be trusted with both their own and other people's money. Now, we're not told if the well-off or the inland revenue, or the military were happy with the counsel that they were given by John, but at least the message was plain, wasn't it? It was easy to understand. Let's say somebody here professes to be a Christian and is sleeping with his girlfriend. What would John say to you? If you're a Christian, exercise self-control until you're married. Somebody's in church this morning and you want to know how trusting in Christ would affect our online viewing, things that are unhelpful to spiritual growth, John would say plainly and simply, you'll have to cut it out. That online gambling site is ruining you. It's ruining your family. That pornographic site is corrupting your mind. That app is wasting your time. And you might like to hear it, but at least it's direct. At least it's plain. And that's refreshing. John's preaching was compelling because it was a word from the Lord. It helped people see and hear in a world of grayness and nuances. It was direct, it was simple, it was clear, it was forthright. Now, we're nearly finished, um, but let me mention just two other things, very briefly indeed. John preached with integrity and humility. John never asked of anything of people that he wasn't prepared to do himself. Do you see how he invited people with plenty of spare clothes to share those with people who had none, and he himself dressed in camel skin? 
And John invited the followers of Jesus who were wealthy to be generous with their hospitality, and he himself merely ate locusts and wild honey. So he wasn't asking of other people what he himself wasn't demonstrating. He was authentic. He lived with integrity. He lived with humility. Before too long, uh, on the 8th of October, to be precise, we're going to see what happened when John preached with integrity and rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, that we can see in verse 19, because of Herodias, his brother's wife. And without fear and favor, John lived with honesty and humility. And that was radical. That was very dangerous. But it was hugely attractive to the crowds who swarmed to hear him. It was so different from all the other preachers of his day. And I wonder if you can see what John said when he was asked in verse 15 if he was the Messiah. He said, no, 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 not at all. I'm not even worthy to untie the shoelaces of him. That's humility. Sometimes people suppose humility has to do with personality type, but it's not the case. There are some horrendously proud introverts. And here is one amazingly humble extrovert. John was honest, he was bold, he was full of integrity, he was self-effacing. So that's the the fourth factor why people were intrigued by what he had got to say. How refreshing it is in our context of celebrity and fake news to see this alternative in John. And then fifthly and lastly, John's preaching was brilliant because he pointed to Jesus John, are you the Christ? Verse 15. No, he said, I'm merely the voice who tells you about him. You the Messiah? Not at all. Let me tell you about the one who will help you see. It's Jesus. In these days of big personalities and huge egos, how refreshing, how different, how attractive. I went around numerous churches throughout Ireland this last year, and it was wonderful standing in some pulpits, and in a number of them, there was a plaque in here for the eyes of the preacher to see. And it had a quotation from John 12, verse 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Good reminder for any preacher. Congregation doesn't want to hear about Frank Seder. Congregation doesn't want to hear about my latest ideas. Sir, we want to see Jesus. And I think that could well have been John the Baptizer's favorite sentiment too. Don't look at me. Look at him. Don't look at John. Look at Jesus. And that's our job too. That's our role at school, at work, in the locker room. To point to the one who only ever existed, who came from God, who died on a cross to rescue us from our sins and raise us to everlasting life. Point to Jesus by what you say, by how you live, by sharing a Christian book, by telling your story, by making yourselves available at times of vulnerability and need. We can help people see and hear Jesus. We can be direct, we can be simple, we can be clear, we can be humble, we can be transparently honest, and 
God by his Holy Spirit will do the rest. You see, a day is coming when the Lord Jesus will surely return. As certainly as Irma will strike Florida today, the signs are plain. The King is coming. And our responsibility is to listen to the voice. To paraphrase Governor Rick Scott, we need to be aggressive to protect ourselves, our family and friends, but the one who is altogether powerful and totally pure will sift us like grain. He will gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burnt up with unquenchable fire. Listen to him. And so we pray together. Our Heavenly Father, John, exhorted the people and preached good news to them. As you speak into our context, enable us, please, to live for the honor of Christ and the glory of his holy name. Let us come together now in prayer. Father, as we respond to your word this morning, we do so with thankful hearts. We are thankful that the one whose sandals we are not worthy to untie is the one who washed his followers' feet. We thank you that the one who will come in certain judgment first came in mercy, bringing forgiveness to the world. We thank you that the one who had equality with God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he became obedient to death, even death on a cross for our sake. And so, Father, we praise you for this wonderful good news, the good news of Jesus, the news that John shared. Father, we thank you for the hope that this gives us and the purpose in life now. Father, may what we believe match with how we live. May it change our very lives. And so as we bring our offering to you this morning, we do so offering not just our money in response to you, but also the entirety of our lives. Would you take us and use us for your purpose and your will? Father, we want to pray this morning for our church family. We pray for those who would love to be with us this morning, but for different reasons cannot. We think especially of those who are ill or housebound. Father, would you bring comfort to them? Would you help them to find time in the midst of their day to turn to your word, to hear your message, 
that that would bring them comfort and hope. Father, we pray for those who are grieving. And in particular, we want to pray for Gillian and the whole family circle. Would you draw near to them? Would you be their rock? And would you help them to rest in you? Father, as we come here at the beginning of a new term, we pray for all of the organizations that will be starting back this week. Father, we pray for all of the leaders giving thanks to you for them. We pray that you would be at work in their lives. And Father, we pray that all that happens in this church, in these buildings, within this community, would be to point people to Jesus. Would you help these organizations to be shaped by that desire to point people to you? In the same way, Lord, we want to pray for Sam, for Emma, and for the girls as they begin to settle into life here in Bloomfield. Would you help them to settle quickly? Would you help us as a church family to be welcoming to them? Father, we want to pray for our students who are heading away back soon to university or who are beginning new studies for the first time. Father, would you go with them as they leave? And with all that they know about you that they have learned here, stay with them. And would you place them in churches and friendship circles that help point them to you? And Father, we also want to pray for our partners in mission who are pointing people to you around the world. In particular, Lord, we pray for Helen, for Russell, for Brian, and for Simone. We pray that each of them, as they continue to follow your call in their life, would be uplifted and strengthened by you. And then, Lord, we want to pray for our world. Father, when we look at our world, we see so much turmoil. We see grief, we see destruction, we see a world that desperately needs you. So, Father, we want to begin by praying for those who are recovering from what has already happened with Hurricane Irma, for those different islands that have been devastated by its impact. Would you help them in their recovery? Would you comfort those who have lost? And then, Lord, we want to pray for Florida as they prepare for the hurricane to come. Would you help people to be organized? Would you help those organizing relief efforts and safety procedures to do so as well as they can? Father, we pray for churches in these areas that you would help them to be a force for good and a community that points people to the hope they can find in you. And as we pray for what's going to happen with Hurricane Irma, we continue to remember those in Texas and elsewhere still recovering from Hurricane Harvey. Father, we also want to pray for those who have been affected by the earthquake in Mexico. We see this morning that the death toll has risen to 90. Would you bring comfort to those families and help them as they recover? Father, we pray for the refugee crisis in Myanmar. We pray that peace would prevail and that those being displaced from their home would find somewhere where they can lay their head, where they can be safe, and where they can be welcomed. And Father, when we look at our world, it's easy to despair, but yet we know that what our world needs most is to be pointed to Jesus. 
that Jesus is the antidote to all of the bad news in our society. So, Father, for all of those people struggling in our world at this time, would you reveal yourself to them and help them to find eternal hope and safety in you? Father, as we leave this building this morning, we pray that we do not do so unchanged, but that as we have heard from your word, that we would respond, that we would take this message of John to heart. May we be a people who are focused on and pointing others to the Lord Jesus. May we be a people who are turning our eyes daily towards him, And as we hear your living and active word, help us to go in response. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip, uh, thank you very much for leading us uh, so helpfully in our prayers this morning. And our prayers are with you uh, as you start as uh, student for ministry this month in Union College. God bless you in that new adventure.